0: Hey, everybody, it's Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. And our guest today is an internationally respected scholar, professor of philosophy, and has served as both the department chair and executive director for the Center for Ethics at the University of Colorado, Denver, where she's been teaching for the last 25 years. Her specialties and her interests range from history of philosophy to metaphysics. But in the last decade, she shifted her interest to addiction and the use of psychedelics in psychotherapy. She's published dozens of academic papers and has given talks all over the world, including Oxford University, the Soborn, the University of Barcelona, the University of Frankfurt, and many more, as well as addiction recovery settings all over the world and other public arenas. She wrote and released a book in 2016 called Addiction, A Philosophical Perspective. She's the only philosopher included in the recently published Handbook of Medical Hallucinogenics, an an anthology by and for researchers and psychiatric treatment professionals. Welcome to Free Thinking, Dr. Shelby. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hi, I'm so glad to be here.
0: I'm so glad to have have you. and Can you tell us a little bit about your background in biology and neuroscience and what got you interested in studying addiction specifically?
1: Well, tell you the truth, um, my mother, my father, and my sister are all dead from addiction. Oh my so my dad dropped dead on his uh, on my son's twenty first birthday, shaving um, from a heart attack from smoking cigarettes. My wow. mother and my sister died the hard, ugly way, and so I've always been in addiction training, treatment, family support stuff but i went to uh college and i learned about philosophy and that world is totally rational that's organized the all the what you learn is how to make arguments and i was just taken with this world that was not chaotic and so i studied the history of philosophy and all these systems and rationality and all that stuff and then um i was promised once you get tenure you're allowed to do whatever you want to do so about 10 years ago, I uh, started, I wanted to address this problem. And the reason I wanted to address it was because I was so annoyed with the fact that you would send people into recovery centers, they stay 28 days, they tell them to go to God, and they feed them honey and bunch of serotonin developing foods, pastas, and all of that, get them relaxed, send them to 12-step programs, hardly ever have any medical contact at all. And then they send them out again and insurance will pay as long as they relapse, which they do. And so I had a puzzle. Why do they send you to AA and God and 12 steps if you're in the hospital for a disease?
0: Well, you know, I got to tell you something. I, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say and speak so candidly about this this way, because, you know, I was completely blown away a couple of years ago when I learned that You know, we have thousands of addiction treatment centers, for profit centers around the country. None of them are certified with any kind of true certification or or any standard of treatment. There are some of these places that are run by people who were former addicts who claim to have, you know, the inside story. And yet you find out that their inside story is how to reach into somebody's checkbook and continue to reach in the checkbook. I live in the state of Florida right now, and I know that, you know, Florida has been you know, the last 20 years, one of the mecca centers of, you know, addiction treatment centers, and none of them are certified by anybody, which blew my mind when I heard this. And, you know, when you, 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 you look at these commercials, come down to so-and-so retreat and you'll find the way to happiness. And I go, well, geez, I mean, it's a Dr. So-and-so Smith and Dr. So-and-so Smith. And then you find out that Dr. So-and-so Smith and Smith don't know a damn thing. They went to school for economics. So what the heck are they teaching people?
1: Yeah. So I wonder why they have so many of those in places like Florida, California, and Hawaii. Um, the advertising is really good, but you know that involves a, what I call in my book an unholy trinity of hospitals, insurance agencies, and big pharma. Because what they can do is bring people in, your insurance will pay, they can give you uh, anti-anxiety medications, antidepressants, Bipolar problem and medications, and then they send you right back out. And then what happens? Ninety-five percent of the people don't succeed, and they don't succeed because the pain's still there. They haven't treated the trauma. They haven't treated. Gabor Mate and I agree that um, you know Gabor Mate. He's a physician, in Vancouver, a very famous um, bestseller, and said that he never saw any people with sufficient a sufficiently uh, dire. Uh, addictions to end up in rehabs who didn't have major trauma. So what we're dealing with is untreated background problems and over-treated momentary problems.
0: And when you also, you you just nailed the three states, Arizona, you know, Florida and Hawaii. We also know that those are states that have really unbelievably significant addiction problems to opioids and other pharmaceuticals. And people wonder why, because it's just literally, You know, carte blanche, right? I mean, doctors were able to write prescriptions to the tune of 20 and 30 or 40 of them per patient. Right.
1: So, you know, we have like uh, what is called three stages of the opioid crisis, right? At first, we have Purdue selling everybody on OxyContin because people do have pain. And yeah, everybody's overweight. They don't exercise, you bet. People's backs hurt and all of that. They're handing them out, especially in Florida. Um, there with those pain management clinics. And so then the, right, we had this in the Congress enacted all of these draconian laws and so did the states about what doctors could do in overseeing the pharmacies and all of that. And so then people just went to the street drugs. So then we had this major opioid crisis because of that. But then third, third round, we got uh, the fentanyl coming in and um fentanyl is because it's 100 times stronger than that than heroin they're able to sell it for make a whole bunch more money on the people who are now addicted to the new drugs and then the the overdoses increase and increase and then um we have what's been called now the uh the covid uh fourth wave of the opioid crisis and that is because Um, social situation is so bad. And I see this all the time in students um, and everybody, just everybody, even the providers that I know. Um, With that extra stress added on, now we've got these other layers. And yet nobody's addressing anything like a root cause.
0: Yeah, I find it really very interesting. You are one of the only doctors that are speaking out in this way Especially right now where, you know, I mean, I I, I, had, I had an idea about doing this podcast with you to get to the point of using psychedelics and those things, and we're going to get to that. But I am so fascinated by your philosophical background, and I want to kind of pick your philosophical brain a little bit and look at what's going on in America philosophically. I mean, you know, first, let me start with where you just left off. A, don't you find it very interesting that a year and a half ago before COVID, everybody was all up in arms about the opioid addiction problem. We didn't solve it, didn't go away. All of a sudden, we just stopped talking about it. Number of deaths are still the same. Number overdoses are still the same. The crisis that's going on across the country is still the same. Though they may be selling less of Oxycodone, they are selling more of others.
1: So have we really, Even, and nobody's talking about it. Let me tell you this, um, Montel. In the year um, from 19, uh, from 2019 to 2020, so from September 2019 to August 2020, um, there were 89,000 overdose deaths. The year before that, there were 70,000. Up by 18,000, they're expecting this year to come in more than 100,000. Um, opioid deaths. And guess what, how many more times are caused by prescribed drugs than not by prescribed drugs? I I
0: bet you it's got to be at least two times or three times.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And this country, the United States, um, we are 5% of the world's population, but 80% of the narcotics prescribed are prescribed here. Well, you know,
0: (laughs) There's another little piece of that puzzle that a lot of people, again, there are things we just refuse to talk about. We fought a war for 20 years in the land that produces the majority of these drugs. Yet our military had a hands-off mission when it comes to those producing poppy fields. And you wonder why? Was it because the rest of the world said, leave it alone? No because we knew that there was an industry built on survivability of the opioids coming out of that golden triangle. But nobody's willing to even state or say or ask a question about that. I mean, uh, philosophically, to me, that makes me feel like all of our leaders and all those who talk about this as a problem are just another sheet in my mouth full of shit, but I believe they are. And two, We won't even try to connect the dots in our social turmoil in America to what we see philosophically as this hands-off approach to big business
1: basically terrorizing us Mm -hmm. with these chemicals. Let me tell you, this has been going on for a long time. You know, those tobacco growers that made the whole economy in the Southeast? Well, they gave their slaves rations of their tobacco in order to keep them puffed up with a little dopamine to keep them working all day for unbelievable hours. The Chinese, um, with their coolies and the Americans, when we're building those railroads, we had opium that monopolies selling to these Chinese workers the opioids because It was they kept them getting up in the morning. They're in pain, right? This has been going on for a very long time. And when we passed that, um, that the drug amendment, right, when GW passed that drug amendment to the Medicare that allowed all of a sudden uh, the prescription drugs to be covered by Medicare, the opiate producing companies went from several hundred million dollars in profit every year to several $27, $37 27, 37 billion dollars a year in revenues. So what does that mean? That means that we've got Congress people in the pockets of people and playing with people who are benefiting from the death and the the, the devastation that's brought about to many, many of our um well, so many millions, millions of our because not a, millions of our people, uh citizens who are being affected by this kind of um these kinds of chemicals.
0: You know, now let's stay on the on the philosophical tip for just a minute. And I know you must sit back and reflect and look at America and say, maybe you'll. But but I mean, you've got to sit back and go, you know, what the devil is going on here, especially right now, where we live in a land of people who are so tribally. Bent on the most basic, I don't know, uh, her, hereditary kind of angst that we've had since we were cave people. I, I, you know, I, I look at what's going on. I, I, yes, do we have race issues? Yes, but aren't those race issues really more than race issues? You know, uh, they're, they're way more than that. Aren't the issues that we're facing society when it comes to The fact that a america has been a country that's never been based on inclusion never been based on the idea oh i i heard the president speaking earlier today talking about you know we're a land founded on you know uh uh everyone is is equal under god hell no this was not what this country was founded on we need to go back and recognize that you know there were a bunch of these people that they call puritans that they kicked the heck up out of Europe, why? Because a lot of them were doing so many socially unacceptable things that they came to the United States to see if they could get away with doing those socially unacceptable things here. And then when they got here, they even separated their groups to get rid of some of them that they thought were more, less, okay. along with you know, committing genocide and committing some of the most horrific crimes to man. And we've never really gotten away from you know, that's
1: been subdued right under the surface, but we've never really gotten away from it. We're we're a country that's built on exploitation. And the when we are we have institutionally ingrained exploitation because who came here first? Exactly what you said, and who did we bring, right? People that were intrinsically and by nature now for generations traumatized because they are they they're essentially excluded um, they're essentially less and then everybody else that's here that we colonize everybody this country is made on on capitalism and the, and the dollar it's not I don't see the I don't see the argument that um, our biggest our, our biggest problems are um, fundamental inequality that is grown every year and every year because of the way that capital that capital grows um, and the way that wealth Accumulates and does not accumulate in families that never get out of the starting gate. And the we build our 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 country on the backs of these people. If you don't have those people picking the avocados, if you don't have those people doing the watermelons, if you don't have those people, in, I'm from Texas, so I know who does all the work. If you don't have those people doing that, then you don't get cheap food. You don't get. I'm sorry.
0: I've been saying this since day one. I I defy somebody, excuse me when I say it this way. People are going to get angry with me. and, And there are reasons why I can say this. But I'm going to tell you, you ain't finding too many young black kids or young white kids in America who want to go out and pick anybody's vegetables. You're not finding too many young white kids or black kids that want to go out and clean the bathrooms at Motel 6. You're not seeing too many young white kids or black kids going to school right now trying to become doctors and nurses. You know, trying to become nurse's assistants, trying to work in hospitals as janitors. So we have an entire service part of this this economy that's never going to spring back. I mean, I think we're looking at something that's like a bold-faced lie when we hear some of the politicians talk about the fact that the economy is going to come back. It's not coming back. I mean, I I, I, I I, don't have I got friends of mine who have kids and i, I not one of them little lazy butts are going to get their butts up and go out the field and pick an avocado tomorrow. Yeah, we want to close the border and turn against those who are willing to do it for you just to make a, a penny.
1: Exactly. People are desperate to make anything and live in a place where they feel rudimentarily safe. But my son got a job as a chicken stacker in a freezer when he was um, recovering from his own alcoholism. And he said, Mom, I can't keep up with the Mexicans. I can't. And he's, he's six foot five, big old boy. And going in there in that freezer and stacking the Costco boxes of chickens, he was like, I can't do it. And of course you don't want to do that. You know why? Because you live, you grew up in my house. Nobody wants to do that. Um, But, but people who have never had the chance to live anywhere where they even felt fundamentally safe, not, not that we're safe in our cities, but fundamentally safe, where you can actually drink the water, where you can actually walk across the street. Those yeah, other people are willing to work way much much harder than our children are in order to get just the opportunity. But that's a lie too, right? We are just as caste system um, as India, as the royal societies of France and England in the old days. Uh, there is we don't have upward mobility. That is a that's a bold faced lie. Uh, our upward mobility uh, exists in the classes that already have a foot in the door. Some people ask me, why aren't you in in debt, Or why aren't you under a bridge with a a needle in your arm? Well, my great grandmother paid for me to go to kindergarten when I was four and I did well in school. And my dad was white and worked in a refinery. And I got the chance to go to college because of that. Right. But tell me that somebody from Guatemala coming over here is going to get the opportunity for any of that.
0: But then those people that come here from Guatemala know in their heart of hearts that they're going to work as hard as they can to give that opportunity to their child. Right. Whereas we may work as hard as we can to make sure we can buy the next Escalade for ourselves rather than sharing that wealth with our next generation. Um, I, I just I just just philosophically, as you look at the news and you watch what's going on. Please tell me I'm wrong when I say this, but I've been saying for the last four or five months, and I I want I don't want a lightning bolt to hit me, but I'm telling you, I feel bad because I even say this. It's like, I feel as if America has seen its better days. I feel as if this country's core, the people who literally believe that they, you know, I was watching a, a show, the other watching the news program the other day And I saw this well-meaning lady stand up before a group of people and she said, and her exact words were, listen to me, I am not a racist, but I believe that this critical race theory and all this retelling of history is as racist as anything I've ever seen before. And then I stopped and I went, excuse me, you mean you don't want us to tell the truth about our past? You would rather ignore our past and try to move forward claiming that we are what we're not. How can we ever move forward? It's that like, you know, I've said it, I say it and it's not my quote, but it's a lot of people's quotes. That, you know, you can never know where you're going to go. You will never get to where you're trying to get to unless you know where you've been.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so in the case of uh, addiction, unless you see what it is, And what you've been doing, you're not moving forward. In the case of our educating our kids to think, I mean, first of all, the argument is that you're teaching critical race theory, which is a very sophisticated theory. And it's also a
0: bullcrap term, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, the only philosophers and lawyers even use. That is, now it's being thrown around as though it were just telling the blank truth is doing some kind of sophisticated theory. So just in the same way that some schools that I know don't, don't I grew up in Texas, remember, that will not allow teaching elementary kids uh, yoga because that's bringing in Eastern religions. And, that
0: blows my mind.
1: Right? Crazy crap. And if so you tell them that the Alamo, which is the most, I mean, the, the San Jacinto Monument, which I grew up down the street from, that that was the Battle of San Jacinto was not a battle. It was a massacre that the, the Texans sneaked up in the middle of what's supposed to be a conventionally peaceful time, siesta, and massacred everybody. Um, that is what we've been worshiping as the bravest day in Texas history and when we won our independence from oppressive Mexico. When my friends in high school found that out, which was about two years ago on Facebook, they were stunned. That we had been taught falsities. We've been taught straight up falsehoods. And when we say things like, um, yeah, the slaves were happy because you know they were given all the, the privilege that they, they had a place to live, and they had some people got to live in the house, and they got they were had stability. And and the people who grew up learning that, I mean, it's not their fault, right? And then they taught, they uphold that as part of their own tradition, and this is what we mean by structurally inured um, racism and isolationism, that people grew up learning like I did that the Battle of the Alamo was sacred, not that we lost, that the Battle of San Jacinto was a masterful win over Santa Ana when it was actually a massacre, When we grow up, think, learning this and learning that we need to revere our forefathers in the South, we grow up and then teach it to the next generation. Because guess how far removed from the facts we got before anybody started noticing that? You know what? All of you people who've been in charge of this, all of you white people who've been running a textbook conservatory and every right the approval of all of the history books. All of you are in the same group and you're telling your story. And yeah, that's your story. And that's one tiny story out of all the stories that make up history. But we don't want to say what the rest of the story is because suddenly that's in that's inculcating liberalism in our children. And that's right. I saw that Florida is now going to give requires college level students uh to say what their political views are because they don't want them indoctrinated by us crazy liberal uh educators. And there's nothing liberal about telling the truth. That you don't have people physicists saying, oh no, don't tell them, don't tell them about the expansion theory. We don't want to know about you don't have that.
0: Yeah, I I I I just I just don't understand how do we get out of this. I mean, we are are, you know, you, you look at the this battle that's going on you know, in Washington, D.C. right now about the basic right to vote, you know, the right to have citizens have a say in their government, which is supposedly what this government was built on. That's why the term democracy even exists. We don't want democracy. We want something else. And, you know, how do we get out of this, Doc?
1: Well, I can tell you um, sort of a different theoretical framework. I'm not going to tell you wrong because I'm worried that you're right. But I can tell you that, um, that history doesn't proceed in, the, in a straight direction. Um, you know, the philosopher Hegel talks about uh, the dialectic, and history proceeds in a spiral. And if there is increasing freedom, it's not gonna come easy and it's not gonna come fast. And all of those things, like the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, and our having a black president. And being able to move forward those and being able to get rid of the the mortgage lending redline laws and right, those things all come at a price. Every time there's a step forward, there's a crash. And we're looking at a really ugly place right now. And I'm not saying that that it looks like there's there's an obvious way out, but you can you can feel the resistance. Because what is that, what is that voting rights resistance in Texas and in Florida and Arizona? What are they what are they really worried about? Oh, we're losing. Oh my God, those other people are gonna have to count as people too. Oh, holy hell, let's hold on. And I don't think that has to happen. I mean, I think that will happen. And I don't know, it's either crash and burn or and China takes over, or it is continue with this dialectic, and then there is a fight back on the other side and there is more progress and there's broadened. I mean, we actually do have a woman of color sitting in the vice presidency right now. And we
0: we have a new generation that just honestly, I think part of the problem is as much as I, you know, love my children and I love and respect their individual opinions. Some of them are just sitting on their bike going, well, you know, it happens, whatever happens. It's like stop I, I want this generation that believes that they are so connected to step up to the plate and start demanding change i mean you know i've got I've got a range of children from you know twenty six to thirty seven and you know my twenty six year old huh so do i huh? <laughs> my twenty six year old twenty seven year old you know they have friends that you know they just don't I, I, I find myself having conversations with them. Where they truly do not understand. I mean, I, and, and I go, hmm, did I keep you so, you know, smothered that I didn't give you an opportunity to actually see outside of yourself? And I think in some ways I blame myself for that because they don't look critically at the world. They believe that their friends, their small, you know, one fourth of this nation will overcome the other. Three quarters. And I'm not sure if they're gonna have the strength and numbers to be able to do that. However, it's a snowball rolling downhill. You can't stop the coloring of America. If we try to stop it, we'll end up like Sweden, you know, a place that, you know, made sure that they call their race every now and then, continue to call their races every now and then. People don't even know the story of what took place in Sweden and the You know, early 60s and late 50s, where they literally went through and euthanized or uh, uh, sterilized anybody who was different there to make sure people, you know, I've talked to people, they say, well, you know, well, at least well, what if we had a system like Sweden? I say, what you need to do is stop, smack yourself inside the head and recognize what Sweden really did and who Swedes really are. You might think that Swedes may not be any different than Nazi Germany. I mean, truthfully, if you dig into the truth behind how come there's only eight million of them now, and there was only eight million of them in the '60s, there's a reason for that because they stopped their birth rate, and they got rid of. They tried to get rid of. Hopefully, we won't do that here. I think there is a snowball rolling downhill. We're not going to have hospitals when I mean, you look at what's going on right now. You know, across the board, across the country, we have a shortage of employable people with skills because we've shut our borders to block those who can take care of us. That's only going to work for a couple of years until some of the people in power as mothers, sisters, fathers, kids, and journalists, people go to hospital and then realize that they got to wait 12 hours or realize that they won't get a nurse or they won't see a nurse for two days. That's crap is going to stop, I think. But-
1: I mean, I, and there are other problems with that, right? Because the way that we educate people, um, I see this all, all the time, all the time, all the time. Um, by the way, m- most of I have many, many students who are activists, and that is largely because I, my philosophy department is a social justice oriented philosophy department. So we spend a lot of time and energy on encouraging these students. But I can tell you, the students who are the most activists are the students who are um, queer LGBTQ, um, because they've been ostracized because they have everything on the line. They are, um, immigrants because they have everything on the line, but we work right to help them to understand. I mean, to get our, the rest of our students to understand that it's up to us. We have to change. I loved that young man that you had on your program the other day, uh, uh, with the climate change. Um, that guy was totally in and he understands this is his world dying. And this is what my job is. My job is to encourage these and train these people off to medical schools and to, to law schools. And I have a number of them working on immigration issues in, that, are, that are legal theorists and practitioners. Um, but the problem is that we think that educate the state has totally abdicated its responsibility to educate its people. So, And we don't really want that, do we? We really only want the rich ones educated because they will continue to foster the exact same ideas that have got us into this mess. We don't want to educate everybody. We want it to be priced. Then we want them to be priced out of the market because if they're educated, then they will become congressmen and then they will become lawyers and then they will become right. They will institute law, uh, lawsuits and they will institute... Voting rights uh, legislation and water rights. Um, so the problem is, tuitions have gone up so incredibly in the last twenty years, and state contributions to education have gone down so severely that the the students who we would want to be our doctors, to be our lawyers, to be our to go to community college and to be um, physicians. Uh, attendance to be uh, medical workers in and and well, I tell you when it's going to become important, right? Is in the uh, the aging facilities because we're getting old, and if somebody's not around to take care of us, then we're going to be upset about that. But they're not being trained because they're being priced out of the market. And when COVID came, I had so many students we, we disenroll; they didn't enroll the next time because parents lost jobs, they lost insurance. And students had to go to work to help. So if we don't fund education, if we don't support these students, um, they can't all be bartenders all night long and go to school all day.
0: Absolutely right. Absolutely. Right. I, mean, I just wanted to kick that around a little bit with you because, I mean, I you know, never get a chance to jump into deep conversations like that with other people. So I appreciate that. And thank you so much. But I guess you're studying. Let's get back to addiction. Addiction is one of those things that doesn't see a demographic. I mean, and your studying addiction has offered you, or has it offered you any comfort or answers to the questions that you had for yourself about the people that you lost to addiction? Your study has that helped? Yeah.
1: You know what we do. I mean, this is what people do, right? You go in to fix yourself. I don't know very many practicing psychologists that didn't go into psychology because they had some kind of problem themselves or they're worried about their family. For me, like I said, when I went to college, it was like to get into an organized world. I wanted to be able to think about things in a way. And it helps me to figure out what is actually going on with addiction. Why is it that I'm not dead and they are? Why is it that, you know, this skips generations that certain people end up addicted, other people don't. So thinking systematically, In a complex dynamic systems way about what actually contributes to suffering from substance use issues, that, that helps me to work out my own problems and give me something to do.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, your, your book, which is addiction, a philosophical, philosophical perspective. Let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So this, this book was, it was something that I felt like I had to do. I didn't I didn't I don't care about readers. I didn't even I just felt like if I didn't work this out for myself, um, I wasn't going to be able to rest. I was um, I was bothered by this puzzle of what addiction could be if the National Institute for Drug Administration constantly says it's a continually relapsing brain disease. And yet nobody treats that. Nobody goes in and treats dopamine regulation and the nucleus accumbens the ventral metal tegmental. They send you to AA or they send you to NA or they send you to a treatment center. And it frustrated me to no end. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go through this systematically. And I just got educated in evolutionary biology and genetics and psychology, neurology, um, so that I could see what all the various components are. In fact, critical theory and economy, um, uh, economics, all how all of those things work together to bring about this uh, situation in people. I don't. I, I just found you're going to call it a disease. That seems weird because we've had a 27 percent increase in a disease in the last year and a half. They don't. I didn't see a 27 percent increase in heart disease and diabetes and. Um, sickle cell disease in the last, right, one year and a half. So I had this um, this concern, right? And that's why I put the, this book together. And it, um, it turned out that what I found is there. this is, like most things, way, way, way more complicated than anybody wants to talk about.
0: Well, you say in your book that addiction should be understood as a temporal phenomenon And not just the disease. Explain those differences.
1: Okay. So, according to uh, NIDA, this is, I mean, we have a constantly relapsing brain disease. But many, many people go through a period of um, addiction, as Gene Heyman, the Harvard psychologist, showed. And by the time they get to their 30s, usually stop, usually outgrow it. Strangely, when their brains finish myelinating and they get married and they get children, they get responsibilities, they get important projects in their lives, these things fall off for the vast majority. Some people don't enter into addictive cycles until they're older, but then they will cycle back out. And so to say that somebody has a disease, I think is to misrepresent both what disease is and to misrepresent,
0: what addictive situations are. Wow. Um, And now, you know, I mean, thinking in in those terms, that means that maybe we overemphasize the idea that this disease exists. We should be emphasizing the fact that we've got to go back and take a look at the Base root cause the the initial trauma if there was a trauma in there there are some people who are addicted I I, I wonder you tell me if I'm right or wrong that have never had a trauma but they fall into you know uh, I, I, I'm I'm thinking about those some some people who you know get caught up in let's say some of the drugs that aren't opioids that they want to keep going back to and back to and back to are they going back to because they're trying to Cover a a trauma, or are they going back to it because they like the feeling that they experience? And maybe life was just a general trauma. Uh, You know
1: what I mean? Well, this is, yeah, right. So there are a number of different things that I I think can be underlying um, these kinds of processes. Social anxiety, for example, increases chances of somebody being diagnosed with substance abuse disorder, which is what the DSM 5 is now calling it, but they were calling it addiction all the way up until now. yeah, I can imagine people with severe social anxiety. You go to a party, you go to work or you go to whatever and you have drinks and people have drinks all the time and then you get in the habit and then you do it all the time and you feel better then. Um, and then perhaps you get on, you know, some clonopin or some other kind of benzos and and then people, the cycle itself will perpetuate itself after a certain point. Um, I talked to a lady just yesterday, she was, she was, 70 something years old. And she had started drinking because she had a tremor. And it stopped the tremor and it made her feel better. But after less than a few months, because of her frailty and her age, that alcohol had such a debilitating effect on her that her son and her and her husband checked her into a rehab facility. And I I can see right that we can I in my book, I actually outline um, four or five different kind of typical phenomenological experiences like the snowballing effect and the, and that magic effect of a person who has such a discomfort that the first time they take a drug, it is so night and day that they immediately will do it again and again and again. And then there are the, the trauma people, but, you know, a lot of people have trauma that like Dr. Carl Hart, you probably know, because he's from Miami, neuroscientist from uh, Columbia University, uh, grew up in a, a black neighborhood and in Miami was dangerous, dark, and all of that. And and his claim was that there wasn't so much an addiction problem as there was a, a resting problem. And you know, you put people in jails and you take away their their breadwinners and. The rest and all the people have this low level, constant trauma, right? Not the kind that can be treated by RTM or by the, the, maybe not even by the psychedelics. I'm not sure, but this low, because when you're never out of the trauma, it's hard to heal the trauma. And so for people, you know, in, in neighborhoods and in whole swaths of the country where nothing gets better, um, you can see that, that. The idea that this situation would set in with them—it's of course it's prevalent. Of course, it runs in families, because you know addicted parents mess up children, and so then we got that problem.
0: I'm so happy you even brought up R T M. You know, I've been working very closely with uh, Dr. Burke, who created R T M, the Reconsolidation Traumatic Memories, in trying to get you know our government and you know from the V A to the D O D. To recognize that this is a protocol that, that so far has been considered by IST, well, it was ISTSS, you know, one of the only cures for uh, PTSD in existence today. But I've been met with such vehement resistance by those people who are, you know, advocates of, uh, uh, what is it, the um, exposure therapy and those other pro- protocols that are only 30% efficacious. And you know, I was I I had a very close friend of mine, Doctor, um, who uh, used to be the head of neurology at uh, University of Pittsburgh, who said to me, you know, Montel, any transformative medicinal protocols, whether they be medical devices or medicine or even psychological treatment, are met with the most vehement and adamant resistance by the community. And
1: Absolutely. This, why is Absolutely. that? Right? Well, because we've got we first of all, we have socialized doctors to believe that they medicine is the answer. And I see this all the time. We we don't want this is why I, I asked the question, um, what kind of healing do these uh, psychedelics bring about? Because it's the same kind that cognitive behavioral therapy brings about. Same kind that you can get from RTM, same kind. These are treatments that will fix the problem, but we only know two things in medicine, cut it or medicate it. And so one generation educates the next generation. They're never taught about nutrition. They're never taught about managing their stress. They're never taught about the the importance of community. They're never taught. You don't get any doctor who is going to tell you, oh, you know what? You're doctoring your own anxiety. So why don't you meditate um, 10 minutes? Increase it as you can. Do yoga every day as much as you can tolerate 15 minutes, two hours. It doesn't matter. Take a walk. Eat so that you feed your gut bacteria, the good ones, and you don't perforate your gut lining with with uh, pectins, right? With lectins. And what would, where would, where would medicine be if we actually practiced healthcare instead of medical care? I mean, it's very telling that we have a medical community, not a health community. So, and I don't think it's any one doctor's fault or uh, the establishment gets built out of a generation who are trained by a generation.
0: That's absolutely insane. Let's talk a little bit about that before we run out of time. I want to talk about, you know, the use of psychedelics uh, opposed to traditional pharmaceuticals for therapy. And again, you just touched on it, but we're starting to see a breakthrough when it comes to psychedelics for not just addiction, but for trauma, for lots of things. I mean, end-of-life experiences. Uh, Talk a little bit about, you know, psychedelics and their use and what they should be used for.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, the the thing is that, you know, psychedelics were widely used in psychotherapy around the world until the 60s and the development of this sort of political view that the same people who are using these psychedelics are the same kids who are opposing the war. And so you we had a governmental intervention that went worldwide and they were prohibited. Not only were they prohibited, they were Schedule 1, which means that you couldn't even study them. Period. You couldn't get a hold of them for that. But then, in the last, um, in the 2000s, it started being we started being able to get at least enough permission uh, to do a little bit of animal studies on the use of these substances, and then finally uh, human studies. And now we know, right, that that we've had tremendous successes with the use of psilocybin um, in uh, a treatment of uh, intractable depression for um, anxiety and depression, end of life. Um, There's now an institute of uh, psychedelic medicine at Berkeley and one at uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, You know, we find that in a study, LSD is shown to stop uh, to have 70, 80 percent uh, success rate in smoking cessation. Nothing else has more than a 30% MDMA um, for the same reasons, by the way, MDMA therapy in treating um, uh, PTSD in first responders, in uh, war veterans, That it, for the same reasons that it works in RTM. That We're talking about increasing oxytocin levels, right? The natural, um, the hormone that, that uh, causes mothers to bond with babies. Um, and for uh, lactation, birth, uh, and for sex, though the oxytocin levels rise. So there's more trust in the therapists. And so when the, under these protocols, uh, you get people to relax so they can face the fears, um, the traumas, because that's part of the problem with trauma therapy is that it's the, those who experience it have such re traumatizing experiences that. That mere exposure is not going to help. And yeah. I mean,
0: doesn't doesn't the, the psychedelics physically do something to the amygdala in the brain? I mean, are we are we starting to see that that experience actually alters the physicality of the brain?
1: Yeah, yeah, in two different ways, right? So, um, for one thing, it raises the uh, both the the all of the classic. Uh, psychedelics and the the newer MDMA and created uh, psychedelics um, operate on the serotonin levels, which is our well being sort of hormone neurotransmitter, is and it works especially on um, the five H two A receptors, which are in particular parts of the brain, as you mentioned, right in the 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 emotional sort of circuits, including the amygdala, the insula, and all of that, and so by changing the the tightness of the synaptic strength, the strength between the facts of the memory and the emotionality of the memory, then when the treatment is finished and memory is reconsolidated, then it's reconsolidated without all of that depth of emotion in it. So people don't lose their memories they don't forget that things happen to them but they don't feel it with that intrusiveness that causes the nightmares and the the jumpies and the, um, the intrusive thoughts. So it works in, they work in that way, but there's another way also that, that some of these psychedelics work and that is, um, by dampening the default mode network, the default mode network in the central parts of the brain are, um, the parts that are operating when you're not thinking about anything. And they're the parts that you use the most, right? All the time, all the time. And so they are also involved in rigidity and um right, keeping things the same. So my Candace Default Mode Network sees to it that I see things through my lens, and my lens is my history, and my lens is like this. But if you look at the scans of people who are on. Uh, under the influence of some of these psychedelics, you'll see their brain scans don't look like adult brain scans, they look more like a four year old brain scan. So it's opening up all of these other possibilities, connections and all kinds of things. And so people have, they basically learn, they have insights, because they get out of their own way enough to look at the world and see, oh, right. Yeah, that happened. But so did all this other great stuff, and that that was one thing. And so it changes perspective.
0: Do you think we're going to see more and more psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, embrace this? I mean, in the last couple of years, I mean, with the you know the advent of the understanding of the endocannabinoid system. Let's say that is the fact that we as mammals have a built-in system that is 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 there, and God gave it to us, you know, a million years ago to say. You know, these things called cannabinoids that are so good for you. Let me let you make your own. And if every now and then you go out and get some from nature that will help antagonize your own to work a little bit better, it's okay for you. So now we finally have some doctors who are understanding that, you know what, I may have been all off when it comes to cannabinoids and cannabis. Are we going to start to see doctors start to embrace psychedelics a little bit more and understand that, you know what? Maybe this was something that was put on this planet, you know, we go way, way back a thousand years ago. You know, people were having psychedelic experiences all the time. It was part of the birthright. It was part of your right of ascension into adulthood. Exactly. So. Yeah.
1: So and same for masculine peyote and a variety of right these other substances, ayahuasca. So in this uh, handbook of uh, medical hallucinogens where I was like the only philosopher and the other 42 contributors, were uh, neuroscientists, uh, neuropathologists, they were um, psychologists, psychiatrists, practicing therapists, medical doctors. They're all contributing to the study because it's so promising. The, the thing about it is actually using these therapies if it makes the problem go away. And by the way, these experiences are, I mean, these, these, these drugs are not addictive. That there are hardly of all the people in all in all the psilocybin studies and the the people in the, the ayahuasca studies the people in the um, the LSD studies that it's not as though they're like oh yeah I'm gonna go do that every day, it's work. It's it's a it's an experience, and so there's a there's a change that takes place in people where these some of these issues um, anxiety depression trauma and associated disorders. Are actually cured. And so that, that's just, I mean, it's just like, it comes across the same kind of objection that the RTM does and other kinds of therapies that actually aim to fix problems that, well, I don't know, right? The medical, the establishment, I'm not sure that we really want to to fix things because are they going to come back or what, how are we going? to Yes. That you will still have more than enough people to treat. We, the country, is traumatized from the word go. We have millions of people with right so many so many psychiatric disorders, discomforts. That yeah, we can use these protocols, and um, people can actually be changed.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it right there. There are so many people. We have 330 something million, 340 something million people who live in America. And we estimate probably a good 30% to 40% of this country is walking around with a trauma significant enough to cause post-traumatic stress syndrome, syndrome uh, symptoms. And so therefore, there's not a doctor or psychiatrist alive who can treat 100 million people in their lifetime. So there's plenty of people around that are broken that need to be fixed, and you're not going to run out of money. So why don't we start looking at this that way and say, okay, there's there's a significant enough income stream here. Let's start fixing people rather than just keeping people broke long enough to make more money.
1: Yes, exactly, and that was what I was referring to as that unholy trinity of the hospitals and the insurance companies and big pharma. Um, I think that that group has had a um, a role to play in the increasing amount of uh, psych- psychological disorder that we're seeing that we're seeing in this country, and I think that there are a number of people who have had it. Um, I belong to two different professional associations that promote the research and use of and legalization of these substances in psycho in therapeutic situations. I am not Carl Hart. I am not promoting everybody, lets have adult use of drugs in every situation and go ahead. That's not what this is. I'm not in favor of that. What I'm in favor of is the use of promising uh, substances in a therapeutic setting with the correct um, support. Um, and that includes, by the way, I belong to a group called Women in Psychedelics, and that includes making sure. That when people are in the treatment situation, that women in particular, but everybody, um, is cared for. Maybe you need two practitioners with you at all times. Maybe you, because you know it is possible. And and in, in recreational ayahuasca trips, I have heard this story over and over about sexual predation and that sort of stuff in these situations. And that is um, part of the regulation. That's part of using these substances.
0: Why? Yes, I would agree with you 100%. Doc, I tell you, you and I could talk for days. I want to do that. So, you know, at some point in time in the future, I need to definitely have you come back because there's so much more we could talk about. And I think so much more we could talk about that I think our viewers and my listeners would love to hear from you. Um, So you always have a home here whenever you want.
1: Thank you so much. This has been so fun. I think um, we might we might be a little simpatico here.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, it, it's it's literally, you know, time for these conversations to be held more publicly and more open. So I am so looking forward to people tuning in to today's podcast want to make sure that they continue to do so. And I know the first time that they hear you, they're going to ask me to have you come back. So we'll be reaching out to you. OK, thank you so much. Absolutely. You have a great day. And for all of you, make sure you tune into the next Free Thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear feedback, so please send us your comments.